The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 7.39, she's on the line. Prof. Helen Rees. Prof, thank you so much for uh, allowing us to go away to that break quickly. I'm going to crack in with uh, the news that apparently there are two more variants that have been discovered in South Africa. Is this simply a case of the pandemic becoming endemic and shifting and changing as it moves along? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, and we are it's not only in South Africa that these new variants are emerging, but all, all around the world. And they're not being imported. They are just emerging as the virus is changing, um, as it circulates in populations. So, so you're quite right. Uh, we are going to see new variants. We know this. Um, the variant that uh, we, we established, the one that everyone's been talking about, our 501YV2 that, we're, that was identified here, um, is still the, the dominant variant in South Africa. And it's the one that's increased transmissibility and has made the virus more resistant to antibodies. Um, but uh, all the time, whenever we identify a new variant, obviously we'll be watching to see does it become dominant and does it change the way the virus behaves? Uh, yeah. Those would be the important questions. I mean, those questions, does it become dominant and does it change the way the virus behaves, obviously impact then on the vaccine that would be used. Where are we at with that and what are the decisions that have been made? Well, South Africa's really been at the forefront of thinking about this because, you know, we, we you know, obviously had to stop using AstraZeneca early on because of concerns that it might not work as well, um, particularly for we didn't know about severe disease. We knew it wasn't going to work as well, probably for mild disease, but we didn't know about severe disease. So we had to already do a change because of the variant that had emerged with one of the vaccines that we had ordered. So what's happening now worldwide in South Africa, we have working groups that are looking at this, is that we're looking at each of the vaccines and we're talking to the developers and we're saying, do you have data either from the laboratory or do you have any clinical data? Most of the vaccine manufacturers don't have clinical data, but many of them are developing lab-based data looking at antibodies. And we're asking them, what do you know about your vaccine and how, how likely it is that it's going to be effective in the context of our variant? And all of the manufacturers are, are now looking at this very seriously. Um, and we're obviously going to be basing our choices as we go forward on that kind of data. So we're looking at it, so is the World Health Organization, and all around the world people are having to look at this because Brazil has a, also has a very dominant variant called P1. They're also looking at their variant with the vaccine. So this is something that's happening worldwide. Prof, you know, we talk about the vaccine and um Obviously, that would be one of the medical ways to go. Some people obviously are talking about traditional ways to go. So we do have a voice message on that, and uh, we thought we should just play that. Good morning, SAFM. I've got a question for the professor. I have seen a lot of medicines, you know, from uh, a pharmacist. And uh, what I've noticed is, there is that thing that is written there that says this medicine has not been approved by, uh, is it Sapra? Uh, but then they are being sold, you know. So my question comes now in terms of the African, you know, traditional medicines. Uh, is it a case of packaging that does not allow them, you know, uh, uh, not to be in, in, in the shelves? Uh, what is it that can be done? Because, or is it a case of 
yes it might not, those other medicines may not be approved but in terms of measurements and everything else they are they are aware in terms of what is it and how many you know a, a dosage or usage you you you, you may take just just uh, just uh, if you can just clarify that because to me it's it's been a concern to say all of these i see they are not approved but yet they are well packaged and they are being sold in reputable pharmacies so what is it that needs to be done in terms of the our traditional medicines in africa thank you from Unatisonte. prof Yes, and and this is obviously something that's outside. Well, it's not. It links to COVID, but it goes well beyond that. Um, so we we have complementary medicines that many people take every day and and um, believe that the, you know it'll help and boost um, their well-being. And we have traditional medicines, um, and the traditional medicines will come on the one hand from traditional practitioners, and some of them are now being promoted commercially somewhat differently. Um, and so SAPA, the Drug Regulatory Authority, is is in the process of, of looking at ways to, to register these medicines in a way that's, that's different to, say, an antibiotic or the, or the medicines you get from the pharmacy for the prescription. So those medicines are allopathic medicines, we call them. These are medicines that we have to have evidence of efficacy and safety. We have a different framework for evaluating complementary medicines, and traditional medicines have a different framework again. So just to say, yes, this is complicated, but it's not, not all medicines are the same or are, are evaluated in the same way. And uh, so, so that's the first, first comment. Now, in terms of COVID, um, in terms of sort of the, the, the medicines that exist, and we've probably talked about this before, but we did look, we've looked very extensively at, at medicines that exist, that are registered for other reasons, things like antiviral medicines, anti-malarial medicines. And many of those have been evaluated in the laboratory and some have been evaluated in clinical trials to see whether they will help in either preventing or treating COVID. Um, unfortunately, we haven't come up with many uh, good answers and many of them have been unsuccessful, even though we were very optimistic, things like chloroquine. We were optimistic at the beginning that that didn't work. Um, but what is very important is for anybody is, is that only we can only say that something works to treat COVID or prevent COVID if we have clinical trial, clinical data that really convinces us that high quality studies are done well, and then we can evaluate that data and we can register the products to the Drug Regulatory Authority. Um, if we don't have that data, we can't say yes or no. <clears throat> so, so at the moment, unfortunately, we have very few drugs that prevent that that that, that have we we found will do anything to prevent or treat mild illness, and we have some drugs which is good news that will treat severe illness. But these clinical trials have to go on because we don't have enough of those medicines yet and we need to evaluate them. So when you go to the, the pharmacy and you see these things, but, uh, but, but unless it's really proven and they're registered for COVID, um, any other claim is, it cannot be substantiated. But as I say, many people believe in complementary medicines, many people believe in traditional medicines, and that's a different framework. 
But to say they definitely work against COVID, unfortunately, we don't have very strong evidence for many of these medicines yet. You know, what uh, is very interesting about that call, and I want to thank our caller for that, is that it does differentiate, and you've made that quite clear, between traditional medicines, complementary medicines, and then, of course, um, the third, which would be called what? Yeah, well, I said allopathic, but yeah. these are the these are the medicines you get on prescription. These yeah. are the ones, the anti-inflammatories and the antibiotics. So yeah. they're a different sort of, of medicine in a different class. Yeah, fantastic. Prof, um, we know that uh, Germany is talking about going into a COVID third wave. They're saying they've declared that. Italy are being set for an Easter lockdown. And we have been warned that after Easter, we may well see a third wave ourselves. What does this mean? How do we engage in it? Well, remember we're at level one lockdown now, and indeed the um, ministerial advisory committees um, and the the other structures that are are looking at the the advice about lockdowns are indeed looking at Easter because it's obviously a worry. Many people travel. Traditionally, many people would have, say, religious gatherings um, or would be going to the beach. There are many traditions over Easter which involve big gatherings of people. Mm. So certainly we are in the process of saying, what do we do about this? Do we have to up the, the, the level of risk um, beyond the level one that we're in? And I think most people are feeling that we should do more, particularly around mass gatherings. A lot of this is reinforcing or, or enforcing what is already there about limiting the numbers of people in, in gatherings. Yeah. But there is a real worry that unless we do do something over the Easter weekend and the Easter holiday, um, that we will really set the scene for a third wave big time. And so it's very likely that we'll see additional restrictions coming in over Easter. I did read this morning um, that, in fact, our infections have increased again. Is this because we've gone into lockdown one and people are not taking as much care? Or is this something else? Well, you know, I think whenever you do (laughs) relax restrictions, you know, restaurants will fill up, social distancing will diminish. Um, Also, just remember that the schools have gone back as well, uh, you know, some weeks ago now. That will also contribute. Uh, so, so definitely, when we relax restrictions, people feel more relaxed and they feel that life is going back to a, a sense of normality. And, and that is going to be a continuous tension. If the numbers go up enough, we're going to have to increase those restrictions again more. But the balance is, and everyone is trying to get this right, trying to stop these waves emerging versus making sure that the economy which is so battered at the moment, has a chance to in some way start to recover. And that's the balance that everyone is trying to reach. Do you think that there are chances that we might go into a greater lockdown after Easter? Well, I think and wouldn't we'll that have be to wait too and late? see. Yeah, it, we'll have to wait and see. If we have a third wave, we will have to. If you remember that second wave, that mm. huge second wave we had, our hospital systems coped but barely coped. And some hospitals... Um, really struggled in some of the provinces where the resources were perhaps not as good. And when the hospitals get full, it's not only that it means there are a lot of infections, but it's more difficult to give adequate care. If you can't give adequate care in the hospitals because they're overcrowded and the staff are running between patients, it means that, you're, that, that the outcome, if you're seriously ill, is going to be affected. But it's, it's, it's much more difficult to look after lots and lots of people who are seriously ill than than at the moment, you know, where you've got manageable numbers in a hospital. So if those numbers go up, 
we will have to think again about how we protect the health services because that's also protecting people's lives. Prof, we do need to go to a break. Are you prepared to hang around with us for a little longer? Yes, yes. Great, yes. fantastic. We'll go to the break. Getting your weekend started right. The Jet Set Breakfast. Keeping us on knowledgeable ground and keeping us informed on the COVID virus, we've got Prof Helen Reese on the line. Prof, as someone a little bit concerned, and they've put lots of exclamation marks on SMS, and I must say I think it is a good question, is are we not even finished doing the health workers yet with the vaccines, obviously? <clears throat> no, we're not. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And, and the biggest reason is, is the, the vaccine supply because we're getting it in tranches every couple of weeks we get uh, 80,000 doses so we, it's not, we haven't unfortunately got a storage space of 500,000 sitting ready to be rolled out and so that's, that's a limitation uh, the other limitation at the moment is that this is, um, I think we've had a lot of discussion uh, on the media about this it's, a phase, it's a, called a 3D study uh, which means that this is still being done in the context of um, an open-label clinical trial. Everyone, every healthcare worker gets the vaccine. There's no placebo. But we're evaluating safety and any breakthrough infections that may occur amongst people who've had the vaccine. And that just, once you, when you're doing something in the context of a study in this manner, it does take longer. So the procedures are taking longer. But we're learning a lot as we're doing it. So, so far, there's over 130,000 healthcare workers um, and the, you know, the aim is obviously within the next uh, month to two months to finish this, this 3B trial and in parallel import and uh, register ISAPRA um, products and vaccines that can be used on a general rollout basis, which will be a quicker process. So is Johnson & Johnson going to start manufacturing in South Africa? And um, how soon are they going to do that? And does if they start manufacturing in South Africa, does that mean they're going to get to us um, or are they going to be exporting? So a mixture of both. And the answer is yes. And, and this, is, this is a very exciting development. We have, <clears throat> we have two um, uh, uh, manufacturers that are going to be involved with uh, manufacturing the vaccine. One for Johnson & Johnson is Aspen. And then Biovac in the Western Cape is also uh, looking to, to become a, a manufacturer. Um, in terms of Aspen, they are manufacturing the J&J. They're going to manufacture millions of doses. Some will definitely come into South Africa, and we're hoping that in this, this, next, this second quarter that they will be in a position to start releasing some into the South African market. But, but a lot of it will also be um, exported, um, and, and it'll go to things like the COVAX facility. It'll go to other African countries and beyond. So it's going to be a mixture of both. And then uh, we do have a message from someone as well. Hi, SAFM. Just a question for the doctor. If the coronavirus originated in a wet market in China, <clears throat> why is it that, that the world hasn't gone into a massive um, insistence that these wet markets are eradicated and that type of um, trading with, with wild animals is stopped? Why is it that that, that doesn't um, get mentioned um, if, if, if that was the source of the virus and it's, it's caused such havoc, it almost seems to be something that nobody ever discusses. Can Prof comment on that? Thanks. Prof? Yes, I mean, it's a very good question. And uh, <clears throat> we've used the word a lot, zoonotic diseases. 
And these are diseases that uh, we're increasingly worried about because they're jumping from animal species into human species and sometimes through an intermediary species as well. Um, and there's obviously a WHO mission that went to China. We haven't seen their report yet, um, but they went to inspect this wet market, which is obviously being closed down. And I certainly know the Chinese authorities are trying to really clamp down now on, on these markets because of the concern of the sort of the jumping. But unfortunately, that's one, you know, this is one example. This is the coronavirus that we think came from bats. Uh, through an intermediate species in that wet market and then to humans. That has yet to be actually really firmly sort of confirmed. But there are other ways that um, viruses jump, and one of them we we worry about all the time is influenza. So we worry about, for example, a flu virus from chickens that not infrequently jumps into humans. Now, that can happen, and then it doesn't go any further. A few people might become infected. It stops. It's when it changes again and it becomes um, a very virulent virus that we start to worry. And that's when we've had pandemic flu. So the answer is it's not only the wet markets, which absolutely need to be looked at and and that sort of relationship. But there are many other species where we're now worried about this jump because of the proximity in which people are now living with, with particular species of animals. It seems to me that rather than looking at the wet markets, we should be looking at sustainability and climate change. I mean, it's almost like humans yeah. and animals are being concertinaed closer and closer together yeah. because of um, the shift and change in terms of sustainability. Absolutely. And just to remind everybody, we've got Ebola cases again yeah. in Guinea and the DRC. We've got a new outbreak of Ebola in both of those. And that's also a zoonotic disease that has, has jumped species. Um, and has come into humans and keeps re-emerging. And once you get something like Ebola, it's not only that it's necessarily jumping still from the animal into the human, but you you start to build up potentially human reservoirs, which then themselves start to perpetuate outbreaks. So this becomes very complicated both to understand and then to intervene in. Well, it's complicated, but you seem to simplify it every time. I feel like we have a science slash biology slash COVID lesson every time you come online. We really appreciate it, Prof, and uh, look forward to chatting to you again. That's Prof Helen Rees, Chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, SAPRA. She's also a member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee on COVID and a medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the Vitz Reproductive Health and HIV Institute at the University of Vitvatis front and uh, always a fascinating conversation particularly because of the way you guys send in your questions and your uh, ideas as well it's eight o'clock it's time for the news good morning